Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I want to talk about the new year a little bit as I begin. Sometimes it's difficult to begin a new year. Year changes like like birthdays are mile markers in life. Not just because they remind us of how far we've come, but they also hint at how far we may have left to go. They're mile markers also because they remind us of what is done, what we've gotten accomplished, or more likely what we haven't. Do you spend more time thinking about what you got accomplished last year or what you didn't get accomplished last year? And so you think about all those things you purposed to do. I'm going to learn to play the guitar. Anybody choose that one? We had one person in the first service. Okay, there's one. Okay. I will walk two miles a day. Somebody went like this. What does that mean? (laughs) I will waddle two miles a day. I will weeble. I will become debt-free. Anybody? I'm willing to fulfill that if anybody wants to help out. I will park my car in the garage. Anybody get their car in the garage this year? I will read the Bible all the way through. That's good. I hope you did. I hope you will. I will listen carefully to everything my spouse says. Well, we have lists like this. We think about things we didn't get done. And we think, well, maybe this year. Maybe this year. But there are things we intend to do that we never will get done. Now, if you're a little child, you don't live your life thinking that way. Children live their lives thinking about what's happening in the next two to 72 hours. The party, the visit, the playtime, the birthday cake, right? And then when you get a little older, you're a teenager, you you think ahead a little further, and you think, okay, yeah, I'm going to accomplish this and this and this. You get a little older, and you think, yeah, yeah, I'm going to change the world. I'm a college student. I will... I will change the world. And then you get to a certain age, you start to realize that there are really limits. And there are things that you likely won't get done. I remember my father, um, who passed away about 12 years ago, probably 45 years ago, he bought coils of steel cable with metal fasteners with the intention of building a suspended footbridge over the stream in front of his house. And it would have been a beautiful thing and very useful. 
And he had done this before. He had built one for a church camp, so he knew how to build what he wanted to build. Well, life went on, and the parts sat and waited. And I remember a day came toward the end of his life when he, with his mouth, confessed that he, had, he was laying that aside. He gave up hope of getting the bridge built. Dad simply didn't have enough life to fit in the building of that bridge. I'm fairly sure, unless my nephew has moved them, that you can still view the coiled cables in the basement of one of the farm outbuildings, um, likely all rusted beyond use at this point, 45 years old. Losing hope about a footbridge is one thing. Losing hope about life is something else entirely. Losing hope about life is often a temptation that we face. When people lose hope, they are said to despair. Despair is a word that comes from two Latin roots, meaning without hope. Okay? Despair just means without hope. And this is where the word desperate comes from. And so, as we see our hope of something evaporating, we become desperate. So, if you're playing a game of football, and the other team is winning, and it's close, and you're getting to the end of the game, and you see your hope of winning fading away, you become desperate, and so you throw a a Hail Mary. The quarterback goes way back in the pocket and he throws it as hard as he can to the guy or guys that are running as fast as they can to see if they can catch that ball at the far end of the field. Now, it's not the strategy of a football team or a coach coming into a game. He's not looking at his playbook and he's saying, what do I have on page two? The Hail Mary. What do I have on page three? The Hail Mary. Well, let's see, page five. Let's go with the Hail Mary this play, okay? Anybody ever see a game where that's all they did? If somebody did that, they were either playing somebody really bad or they lost. Because it's not a good play. It's not a play you play in any other time but in desperation. When you're desperate, when hope is fading, you might throw the Hail Mary pass. Often we lose hope because we have hoped in the wrong thing. Not having hope appropriate to the person or object that we're hoping in, but hope that crosses the line into big stakes, ultimate hope, conclusive hope, redemptive hope. We may hope in science or medicine. Medicine can, medicine, medicine. You know, I'm always, I I still think doctors know and so I go in and I, you know, Adam's smiling. He's a doctor here. I still think doctors know. So when my wife was sick this past summer and they diagnosed her with fever of unknown origin. And I thought, what good is that? But the fact is they could not figure it out. There's just a lot that, that we don't know. Well, we put our trust in science or medicine. You know, uh, all of these uh, physicists or, uh, you know, uh, 
Stephen Hawking. Every six months, they have a story of Stephen Hawking coming out and saying, we've got to get off this planet. We've got to get off this planet. We're not going to survive unless we get off this planet. Then they have another story where a guy says, well, the only way we, can, we could possibly make it to another habitable planet is if we you know, transform our bodies into androids, download our brains, and those androids maybe can make it to the other planet. And that's going to save us. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. We've lost the point there somewhere, haven't we? (laughs) Fine, the android's there, but why does he need a habitable planet? You know? Send him to the moon. And people are distressed about this. We put our hope in politics or politicians. We put our hope in money or the economy. You know, we hear about, about the Constitution and, and our right to bear arms. Is, it's like, you know, this has been the discussion for the last, I don't know how many, 20 years now, bearing arms, back and forth, back and forth. And it's like a lot of people put their hope that we'll get rid of arms, and a lot of people put all their hope that we won't get rid of arms, you know. I had a friend who posted a, uh, a, a uh, picture of a, a poster, and it said, um, you can't buy happiness, but you can buy ammo. And that's kind of the same thing. <laughs> now listen, did you take note of who laughed? Or more scary, did you take note of who didn't laugh? We aren't wrong to hope that our rulers will be just and responsible. We aren't wrong to hope that we and our family and friends will be well, or that our savings account will still be there in the morning. But unfortunately, with these things and others, we often cross the line into redemptive hope, where there's no possibility of fulfillment, only the certainty of despair. Only the certainty of despair. Back in 2008, when now President Obama was running for office, there was a now somewhat famous stylized stencil portrait of candidate Obama. And it was in, I think, blues and reds and grays, right? You've all seen it probably, and maybe you don't remember it. And then it had one large word. I think they used and interposed different words, but most of the time you saw one large word at the bottom, and it was hope, hope. Now we watch as many of the same people who celebrated hope coming from President Obama are crushed with despair, and what they're doing are desperate things, There's been a lot of desperate actions. There have been a lot of Hail Marys in the last few weeks as we've seen this election cycle closing, right? But if you think about it, what if Mrs. Clinton would have won the election? Would there have been desperate people thinking about the extending of the Clinton era from 24 to 28 or 32 years? I think yes. And it's because we put our hope in things, we put ultimate hope in things, we put hope in things and we, uh, we have misplaced our hope. 
Misplaced hope always comes as a byproduct of having our treasures in this world. In Ephesians 2, verses 10 to 13, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, ultimate hope is given to us here, as it is said, before we knew Christ and before God extended his, his mercy to us, we had no hope. We had no source for ultimate hope. Now, there was lots of hope going on of sorts, but it wasn't the type of hope that was redemptive or that came in looking to or having the expectation of being redeemed by God and being reconciled to him. We were dead in our sins and we were without hope in this world and God hadn't extended his mercy. But that changed with Jesus Christ. And God said to the Gentiles, I will include you and I will present my mercy to you and you who have in the past had no hope and have been without me will now have hope and you will have me. And this is his promise and this is his, his good love toward us. So we, like God's people in the past, being God's people now, have hope. And we have ultimate hope. And we have appropriate hope in God. But even though we are God's people, we are often tempted to despair. And as is true of everyone, we have these temptations when we turn our hearts away from the true source of hope found in our loving Heavenly Father. What tempts us to lose hope? Well, the same things tempt us as have tempted God's people all through history. One is we're tempted to despair when opposition from the world or the illusion of positive rewards for wickedness comes up. And so if you look through the Psalms, you find many, many places where it says the enemy is hard pressing on me. Deliver me in Psalm 43. It says, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. And at the end of that, at the end of verse five in that same chapter, he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance is my God. And so we're often oppressed because we have opposition, we have enemies. And so our help is God. Why are we in despair, the psalmist says. Or Psalm 73, when the man is going up and he's, and he's considering the wealthy who are wicked. He's considering the man who's wicked, who, whose life is easy. And he says, my feet came close to stumbling. What does he mean by that? My steps had almost slipped. What does he mean? He almost despaired. He almost lost hope. 
because he was looking at wicked men and he said, look at them. Their life is easy. They're prosperous. They don't have pain and death. Their body is fat. In other words, they have all they need to eat. They don't have trouble as other men. They're not plagued like mankind. Their pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them, right? They mock and speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have their mouth set against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. And he said, why have I been working to be godly? Why have I been trusting in God and not doing these things that men give themselves to that, are, that have such temporary pleasure? Why? And then he says, I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. In other words, he looked again at God and he was calibrated. We have opposition from the enemies around us. We have opposition from our own minds considering men who seem to do well even though they're wicked. And we have to be recalibrated. Another place that we, get, we uh, are tempted to despair is when we have accusation from Satan. Now, I know that you don't sin. But I know that if you did sin, certainly no one would ever accuse you. You would never have an accusing voice. But when you come into the service on Sundays, I suppose maybe a couple of you, when we're singing the hymns, like me, are sitting there going, I am such crud. And then the voice is coming at me. Yep, you are crud. Nobody else here is crud, just you. You are the cruddiest. And so I get accusations, accusations, accusations. And where do I turn? What do I do? Satan is our enemy, and he is an accuser. And he does this all the time. This is like what he does. Jesus stands before God and intercedes for us and pleads for us. Satan stands in front of us and accuses us, right? And Satan has accused men before God. So if you look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. That's an interesting construction. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You know, it reminds me of uh, God having nobody greater to swear by, but he he swore by himself, you know? The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke... And said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Satan accuses us. And where do we go? The only place we can go is God. 
sometimes we have sorrow over sin, and it's legitimate. It's not the accusation of Satan. It's that our consciences and our hearts are accusing us and saying, you have done this, and it's true, we have done it, and we have to deal with it. And so if you read Psalm 38, you read David talking about his sin. He said, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger. He says, my iniquities have gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. This is his his feeling as he feels the weight of his sin. Godly sorrow over sin. He says, I will hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord, my God. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. He knew who to turn to when he was tempted to despair about his own sin. He knew that he had to turn to God. He knew that he had to turn to God as the source of his hope. We have to turn to God for our life, for perseverance, for power in suffering, for calm assurance in the face of persecution. He is where our hope is found. And we can find our hope in him because in God is the power for our lives to be lived. He has the power to be able to to promise us hope and to give us hope and to fulfill what he promises. So Ephesians 1, 18 to 21, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is the God of power. And so we can hope in him because he is powerful and he can accomplish that which he has said he would do even to the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead. And in him, we will be raised from the dead. And we have the hope of the resurrection. We have the promise and the word of God that help us to know how hope is found in him. Because God has said in Romans 15, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. 
Again, Isaiah says, there shall come out of the root of Jesse, and he will arise, and he who arises will rule over the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. That's promise, and that's a fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and that's us. That's us. We can hope in the power of God. We can hope in the promises in the word of God. We can hope in the very character and faithfulness of God. Because God says that he knows all about us. He knows about our weakness in Romans 8. And then we have that very, very familiar verse where, where it says God, works, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God is for us. He doesn't change, his character doesn't change. He's for us. And then it goes on, it says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Are you worried? Are you tempted to despair? What can separate you from the love of Christ? What? I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, it's a pretty exhaustive list, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Our ultimate hope is to be in God. And we have the testimony of Scripture showing us how to look to God as that one that we put our hope in. But how practiced are we at finding ourselves hoping in God? I love the biblical accounts where God's people are afraid and then he does something incredible that they talk about and, and rehearse over and over again for decades and generations and, and centuries, right? And so this past year, as we were driving as a family to Michigan at one point, uh, I was listening to the, the first CD of the Psalm Project, not to be confused with the second CD, which is coming soon, right? Yeah. And so I'm listening to that, and I'm having one of those Worship in the car times. Do you have worship in the car times? I think Phil actually engineered the CD to sound best in the car, right? And so I'm in the car, and I've had some difficult time before that trip, and I'm in the car, and I'm listening, and God is just kind of ministering to me, peace. And I start thinking about all of these accounts in the Scripture, and the one that pops out right away is the one about balsam trees. Do you know the one about balsam trees? Now, this isn't balsam firs like we have in, in America. This is the balsam trees that are in Israel. And the story about balsam trees 
is in 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. When David inquired of the Lord, he, that is the Lord, said, you shall not go directly up, circle around behind them, and come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be that when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Then David did so just as the Lord had commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So what happens? What happens in the balsam trees? David's waiting there under the instruction of God and he hears marching in the balsam trees, right? Now in your lives, I'm gonna get to this a little bit more in a minute, but in your lives, you should have times that you can think back on and say, that was a time I heard the army of God marching in the balsam trees. Now I'm not talking about literally for you, balsam trees and army of God marching. I'm talking about God working, God delivering, God helping you. I'm gonna get to that more in just a second. So I love this account of David and the balsam trees, and that's what I thought of in the car, and I started thinking about other accounts, and I thought about Elisha as, uh, as, he's, uh, as Israel is at war with Aram, and Aram is warring against Israel, and how the, the king of Aram is frustrated because he's always going to find Israel to destroy them, and, and every time he goes, they're not there. And it's because God tells Elisha where he's coming, and so Elisha tells the king, and they move. And so it's this like, and so the king of Aram says, who on you, he's talking to his staff, which one of you is telling them what we're doing? Which one of them, which one of you is sending carrier pigeons to Israel to tell them what we're doing? And so they say, we don't, we're not doing this. It's because they have Elisha. They knew about Elisha. It's because they have Elisha. He tells them what we're doing before we get there. So the the king decides, okay, I've got to stop Elisha. So he takes the army in. They surround the city where Elisha is. I think it's Dothan, Dothan. And they surround the city. And Elisha's servant runs in and he says, he says, oh, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And he's thinking, despair. What are we going to do? Where's the escape route? And Elisha just says to him, uh, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We've got a bigger team. We have a bigger army. And then he prays to God to open the servant's eyes, and God does it. And what does the man see? He sees the chariots of God, the forces of God surrounding them. And of course, the, the story ends with God striking the, Arams, the forces of Aram blind and Elisha leading them into the center of, the, of Israel and delivering them to the king of Israel. Their eyes are open and they're in town here and they're surrounded by the Israeli army, right? That's how the story ends. God, think about these accounts. How about the crossing of the Red Sea? You know when it says that Israel crossed the Red Sea, it says that they crossed on dry ground. 
Now, is that significant? On dry ground. It says that I think three times that they crossed on dry ground. Once it says the waters walled up like walls on each side, okay? Now, this is how my mind works, okay? I saw a documentary on how the Netherlands reclaimed Earth. You know the Netherlands where they build the dikes and the the windmills and they pump out the water and then they've got ground below sea level? Well, they do it much more efficiently now. They take a huge system of dams and locks and they cover the whole mouth of the sea on one end and they empty all the water out and they reclaim, I don't know how many, hundreds or thousands of square miles they reclaim at one time. Well, I saw the documentary about this. It was fascinating. So they first uh, get the water out, but then you've got, you got shallow pools everywhere, right? And four feet deep of mud. And so they fly over with planes and they plant seeds of things that like to drink water. And they, these reeds and these cattails all grow up and the water gets drank, 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 so the water starts to disappear. Then they start fires and they burn that whole thing off, right? And then they send in the surveyors because they're gonna survey the city. Now I'll give you an aside. The surveyors survey and they're out there and they set the survey lines because there's nothing opposing them anywhere. Every direction is completely flat and there's nothing, there's no trees, nothing obstructing them. It's, it's you know, pretty easy kind of in, in one sense. They survey it all out, then they build a city. Then they move, I forget how many people, five, 10,000 people all at one time and it just a mass introduction of all these people into this brand new city, boom. They have to have meetings and try to figure out how to be neighbors because there isn't any history to the city. So here they are, boom, we all live here now. This is nice. Well, the people didn't like it because when they surveyed, they just surveyed like surveyors would, very engineerish, very efficiently. Every single line was straight. They didn't have to build around a hill or around a river. And, and so people are in this place and they're like bored because the whole place is all straight lines. So the next city they built, they built in curves even though they didn't have to so that people would like it a little better. Okay, that's an aside. So, but when the surveyors are going through and marking out the lines, they're trudging through mud, they're wearing hip waders, they're setting poles, and I mean, they're like getting buried in mud. Now, when Israel crossed the Red Sea, is that what it was like? Is that what your mind pictures, these people trudging through mud? They crossed on dry ground. You know what the Hebrew word is? Dry ground. That's what it says, okay? And why would it be difficult, difficult for God to stand up a sea wall here and a sea wall there, hold it back like a fish tank, and, and not what, dry out the mud under their feet? But you see, that is God. That is the power of God. That is God working toward his people. We are now included in the category of his people. And so we can hope in that God. We have such a God to put our ultimate hope in. In the New Testament, as the, as the disciples went through the city and they, they healed the man at, at, the, at the gate, 
And then the, uh, the religious leaders took them and you know, told them to stop it. And, but they didn't whip them that time because they didn't know what to whip them for. So they said, stop talking. So the disciples went back and they were praising God. And they quoted actually the scripture from the song, from the Psalm that we sang at the beginning of the service. Why do the nations rage? And then they said, this, that's exactly what the, the Jewish leaders are doing, what the Jewish people are doing. They are the ones who are raging against God and against his plan, and we're not gonna stop. And they prayed, and it says that the place was filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with power, and they went out and preached boldly. This wasn't the day of Pentecost. This was subsequent. They were filled again, and they were, they were bold, and they had hope in God because he had given them of his spirit. How many accounts like this are there in the Bible? You know, Tim says he reads through the Bible and and every year he has a different theme and he marks, you've heard him talk about marking in places, he'll put a letter to designate something he's reading, a theme that he's reading in the Bible. If you went through the Bible and put balsam trees or something like just a bee, how many times would you be able to put the bee next to something where God had shown himself powerful for his people so that they would be confirmed in their trust of him, so that they would be calibrated to have hope in him again and again and again and again? And you would find it again and again and again and again. And everyone here should have at least one balsam tree story for your own life. If you're a Christian, If you've placed your hope in Jesus Christ, if you've seen him, the Bible says that you have been given a gift by God to see Jesus Christ and to see God's glory in his face. That God says, it actually says in 2 Corinthians 3 that he puts this in our hearts. That we receive a ministry of mercy is what it says in chapter four, verse one that God shines a light in, in, out of the darkness. He shines a light into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Christ. God does this to your heart when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have at least one story from the balsam trees, you see? At least one. And if you don't have, I plead with you to to ask God to open your eyes to see his glory in his son Jesus and to be delivered from your sins. But if you have that story, you have been born again into a living hope. That's what 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is the ultimate hope. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if you have come to Christ, you have been born again to a living hope, and you have one story, but you should have more. If you've been in Christ any length of time, you should have more. You should be able to say to people, let me tell you a story about what God did. 
Let me tell you an account of what he did to me here, what he did for me there, what he did for my children, what he did for me, going through what he did for my children, what he did for my friend, what he did for my church, how he provided, how he was glorious, how he was faithful. You should have lots of those kinds of stories. And if you don't have them, and you don't know where to look for them, because sometimes we don't, we're kind of like, uh, I'm not sure, how do I, where do I find those stories? Well, they usually surround something that has to do with a battle that we fought, or a difficulty or suffering that we endured, or sorrow after, over sin that has brought repentance to our lives, or persecution that we've undergone. And where we say, okay, this is, now you're thinking, you're thinking about the stories and the times where God says, I'm sufficient for you. You don't have to worry about that. I'm sufficient for you. You can endure this. I'm sufficient for you. And you say, even as Job, even if he slays, slays me, Job said, even if he kills me, I will trust in him. Even if that's his plan, I will trust in him. And you can tell that account to people and you say, this is what God has done. This is the marvelous work that God has done in my behalf. Now I look at you and I say, okay, go ahead and learn the guitar. Go ahead and clean your garage, that's okay. But when you make your New Year's resolution, if you make such things, resolve that you will put your hope in God, that he is the one you'll seek, that you will have your trust put in him, and that you won't be satisfied with anything else because I'll tell you, anything else will bring you despair. That's all that it will bring. Only God is faithful to bring you into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.